22, which is, if you're using the book that's in the pew or the chair, it's page 457. As we have already talked about in our worship service, Philip has led us in the lament. This is the first lament that we have uh, treated uh, in our studies in the Psalms. You may know that there are more laments than anything else in the Psalms. So it's not as though this is a minor note of the Psalms. So it is... It recognizes the great difficulty that we continue to face as human beings, even believers. And I love the way it's expressed in Romans 8, as Paul says, we groan with creation as a mother does in childbirth. Well, that's a pretty graphic picture of the pain. It's not a minor thing. It is all-consuming, it's gripping, it destabilizes you sometimes. I know of men who've gotten hit because they got too close to their wives during labor, right? Things like that. Uh, Things are very, very difficult. Well, that's the picture, this difficult time. Of course, the issue is final new birth, new heavens and the new earth, the redemption of all creation. So there's this picture in this psalm of the present difficulty and suffering, the most honest, agonizing, confusing confessions of it, yet laced with the praises of God. So I hope that can be what we take with us. Honest, dead uh, confession of what we are going through and to seek to move in the, even in the midst of that, to the praise of God. <clears throat> There's a handout being uh, given that we'll look at <clears throat> uh, toward the end of our study. So, let's begin. The first statement is the one most famous because Jesus <clears throat> used this in confessing his confusion and darkness on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. Not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, we rest in you that you would focus our hearts upon your truth. That you would refresh us in this truth. That you would open up its beauties to our hearts. And Lord, that we will... Trust you, that we will embrace you, that we will rejoice in you, that we will find in you the strongest stay in the midst of life when everything crumbles beneath us and around us. Oh Lord, give us this grace for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, this psalm divides pretty obviously. In the lament portion, which you see in verses 1 through 21, ending with this great cry. And even perhaps the last part of verse 21, transitioning to the praise. Because he says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then this amazing section of praise to God that seems to come out of nowhere. Lament, lament, and then just bursting out of the blue, it seems like, this praise. And either either this is second part comes as a result of the deliverance or it may come in contemplation of the deliverance. We're not really sure. But certainly in light of deliverance, either to come or having been accomplished, this praise rolls out and it doesn't stop into the ends of the earth. Pretty amazing. 
But things can be so closed in and dark in the lamentation and end up with light bursting out over the whole of creation. Remarkable depth and breadth of this psalm. So first we want to talk about the honesty and openness of personal pain that's expressed in this psalm. This honesty and openness of personal pain. The cry is, as you can even see on your outline there, is marks this first section. Uh, the cry again and again to God. But I'm going to look at three different aspects of this honesty and openness. First is this cry of disorientation. Okay? A disorientation. Uh, like a child separated from its mother in a place that is so familiar and it can't make heads to tails of anything. Nothing makes sense because the parent is gone. And his, his why is not a theological question, you know, exploring. I wonder why this is going on as much as the agonizing cry of you're my God. Notice the juxtaposition as one has said, those two things shouldn't be in the same phrase, right? My God abandoned. Okay. How can those be together? But that's the disorientation. You're my God. I know you to be my God. Why are you so far from rescuing me? Why are you, you seemingly Oblivious to my groans, noticing my pain. Why am I deserted and neglected? I cry, but you don't answer. You could answer, but you, you won't. You don't. I don't have any rest. This may mean quietness where he says, uh, I find no rest. Because the first uh, phrase is, why are you so far from the words of my bellowing? <laughs> the idea of just, I'm Crying out, I'm wailing in my pain. And I find no, there is no quietness because there's no answer. And so I just continue to bellow. And it makes me think of those sad times I've been in a hospital to hear somebody down the hall or in the other bed just crying and moaning over and over and over and over and over again. That's the picture here. Incessant moaning because you will not answer me. You're, you seem to be a deaf God at this point. But you see, by saying, my God, it shows the incongruity of this situation. But he can, you know, verse 10 again says, my God. So everything's framed within this. It's, he can't get away from the relationship, and yet he doesn't understand it. And he reminds himself uh, of what he has done in the past. Like verse 4, our fathers trusted in you and you delivered them. And he's, it's almost as to say, it's not as though you've never done it. You've done it before. Shouldn't we expect it again? Why not now? Aren't we their children? Won't you return to your ways that you've acted in in the past? You're good at this. You've already done it. Why won't you do it now? Why not continue doing this? And he, he says this, uh, he uses this word trusted uh, again and again. Saying, I'm trusting, I'm trusting, I'm trusting. But it doesn't seem to be getting me anywhere. 
even talking about the relationship there in uh, verses 9 and following, about coming from his mother's womb. And the, the sense is, you couldn't wait to have me immediately from my mother's womb. Even you entrusted me to my mother's breast, the intimacy of that. You so cared for me. You've always cared for me. There's this intimate relationship. It's so opposite of what I'm experiencing in the rejection that I'm going through now. So this is the relationship that you yourself have created, O Lord. Don't be far from the one you have claimed for yourself. One commentator was pointing out that after the Enlightenment, our relationship to God tended to be man-centered. It's whether I believe or not. And I can not believe, I can believe. But he said, this world is, no, this was initiated by God. God brought him into this relationship. And so that's the problem. No matter, even if I'm despairing of God, I can't break free from him. He won't let me go. That's, that's the difficulty. You begin this relationship. Where are you? Where are you? And you see, our Lord Jesus did not stay outside of this confusion and despair of darkness. He entered into the disintegration of mankind. This cry, my God, it's not simply a prophecy of what Jesus would say. It's bigger than that. It's a cry that, that, that peop, the people of God for hundreds of years came back to cry and to enter into. Because we all cry out that why. Why are things the way they are? Generations of God's people. We even read as we've dealt with in our study with Isaiah in a clearly messianic context. Here's what Messiah says. I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. That's where he came to in crying out himself. My God, my God. That's not just a theological statement by Jesus. You know, say, okay, just letting you know I've been abandoned by God and, you know, I'm suffering the wrath of God. No, it's his felt horrific pain and confusion Where are you, oh my Father? So, there's this this disorientation of self. And then there's also this cry, not only of disorientation, but of personal disintegration. Just being torn to pieces unhinged as a human being. He, he calls himself, in verse 6, a worm. He's lost all dignity and worth. He has no significance anymore. Even though he's cherished by God, now he's scorned and despised. He's not even regarded as human. He's regarded as less than human. That's the point. They mock me with their mouths. He, he gets the specifics. They're wagging their heads. This, the very specific details, the painful realities of it, he begins to recount. The impact of it when it happened to him. And even the poetry underscores uh, the, the violence of it as he first mentions 
the bulls and then the lions and then the dogs. And then later in this section, he backs out and the dogs and the lions and the bulls. Just to underscore the horrible animal-like nature of the brutality that he was suffering. And he describes it in verse 12 as being encompassed, uh, surrounded, um, attacked from all sides. There's no escape. I feel trapped. I feel hemmed in. There's no way out. How many times have we felt this way in different circumstances? Even the the Hebrew here, it's not reflected in the English, but it says, encompassed me many bulls, strong bulls surrounded me. So even the the words surround and encompass are surrounding, right? Just the poetry itself is trying to get at the difficulty of it all. And the theme that's mentioned in verse 1 and verse 11 and verse 19, that you're far away. See, that's, where are you? You're so distant. I can't taste you. I, I, I can't. I don't know. You're not doing anything for me. And he ends up in the dirt. In utter humility. Headed toward death. With dogs slavering over him at the prospect of getting to pick apart the remains. These are violent and uh, brutal pictures of what he was Going through. But here's the heart of what they're. The attack. Notice. Where it says. They attack his very faith. Right. They attack his very faith. Because they say in verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And this too was language that became a part of the cross itself. As they mocked Jesus' own faith. So the brutality of their skepticism. Mocks the very foundation and hope of his life. His very purpose and meaning as a human being. They're trying to cut it away. And bring him to despair. To cut away the very structure of his life. Even as the planes cut away the structure of the twin towers. Seeking the enemy seeks to firebomb the framework of our lives. And they can either be external agents as they are in many places in the world. But it can also be uh, the demons acting more directly on our consciousness and Working through our thoughts and bringing about despair. Always with a, a piece of the uh, temptation of Eve to be suspicious of this God. That was the original temptation. He is not to be trusted. He is not to be obeyed. Because he knows that if you follow this line, you will be prevented from being like God. And he's holding out on you. And so we are constantly tempted to give in to this, to think that he does not want my happiness. He will not provide for me in my need. He does not want to relieve my misery. He does not want to rescue me. And they can always say, and your death, your demise, especially in situations where they hold political control, just proves 
just proves the fact. He's not listening to you. He didn't listen to your brother or your wife. He didn't listen to your friend. And he's not listening to you. So they think case closed. That's a verification of the hopelessness of your dreams. But we don't need necessarily external voices because we can produce a lot of that on our own. We can produce a lot of despair on our own, undermining our hope in his goodness and our hope for change, our hope to continue even if this life is destroyed. And so we have perfect freedom to cry out in our agony and our misery and the, the, the blatant loss that we're suffering. And I want to give an illustration of this. It's, it can be so graphic that it could end this way. Now, this psalm ends with praise, right? Let me read another psalm to you. This is how it, this one ends. It's another lament. Here are the last four verses. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's it. That's it. So Psalms are that honest to say sometimes you cry out and you just cry out in darkness. And that's where you seem to stay. Because you hardly can see anything else but just the pain and the darkness around you. And I want to suggest to you that that psalmist is praying in faith, not in unbelief. Praying in faith, honestly expressing the disorientation and the disintegration that one can suffer in this world. The groaning, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. So, at the, at the, at the same time, of we must be honest, the same time of honesty in expressing our pain, yet... As this context shows, and what we must guard against in terms of the enemy is ultimate despair over what is happening to us. So personal hopelessness or personal struggle that finally, over time, issues in glad faith and continues believing and praising in the midst of this personal pain is one thing. But ultimate hopelessness comes from the enemy, right? Ultimate, final hopelessness comes from the enemy. But honest expression is from God. And sometimes it's hard, right? Sometimes it's hard in the midst of both of those. But here's a psalm that lays out uh, a, a, an amazing, horrible disorientation and a, and a life disintegration. And then... A third part of this cry, more briefly, is a cry for real deliverance. Okay? What's interesting is how several uh, commentators point out that 
He's not just asking for, Lord, I just need to know you're here. A spiritual kind of, I just need to know you're near and experience your being here. But he feels abandoned because he's not delivered. Okay? For them, it's really concrete. That is, you show that you do delight in me, that I am your child, that you have loved me from my mother's womb. If you bring deliverance, otherwise I know myself to be abandoned because you haven't done anything for me. Now, in the New Testament, this is somewhat conditioned in that we experience the taste of the future life that we have with God through the Spirit. And we await deliverance. But here's the point I want to connect with this. We pray and have there's no meaning to our prayer unless we believe one day you are going to repair this world. Do you understand? If we're not praying that, if that's not part of our hope, God's not into saying, you know, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It may turn out badly, but I'm going to be with you in the midst of it. That is not the Bible. It is not our hope. Our hope is, the reality is, this world is not what it's supposed to be. This world is broken and trashed by sin and a curse. God has sent his son not only to redeem us individually and as a people, but to redeem his very creation. That is my hope. And I rest in that final hope. And however much of that I taste now, whatever part of that that I see God bring about now, my hope is that he will bring real deliverance. And that's why the resurrection is critical for us. I I did have a... When I lived in Dallas, there was a... Uh, young man, well, 30s or 40s, young for me, okay, but um, I'm not, not a 20-year-old. But um, he made a statement. He, he was pretty new to the church, and he, he hadn't really been around Christianity that much. And he made a statement one day. He said, you know, it, it doesn't really matter to me if this heaven and all that really is there because it's just this life is so good with Jesus right now. And I just said, no, no, no. That is not the Bible. Paul says, if, it's not for the re- if, if the resurrection is not true, we're the people to be pitied. Oh, no, you gave your life to this and there's no resurrection. You pathetic individual. The resurrection means everything to us. We have no hope aside from resurrection. It's what brings us satisfaction that God sees our pain. Even if I end up dying of cancer, I can know you will one day raise my body and I will have a cancer-free body forever and ever. You will fix that. You will fix this ultimately. He is not satisfied. And it is not the final story of, oh good, they died, went to heaven to be with Jesus. No. It's the resurrection of the body and the restoration of all things. Critical New Testament context for us as we think through this. But the 
The reflective part in the Old Testament is a real deliverance and the sense of being abandoned if there's not a real deliverance. We have that real deliverance and it will be rolled out sooner or later for us. I've shared this with many of you, but I think the picture of Jesus at at Lazarus' tomb is a great little microcosm for how he views death and the curse and sin and a broken world. It, show, it says not only that he, was, he wept, but the, the Greek word is that he was angry. And as B.B. Warfield says, he strode to the, to, to the tomb and like a warrior, he raised his friend from the dead. And it was a picture of this is not going to stay this way. I'm going to raise him from the dead. And that's a picture of one day I will bring about the new creation. Because I, I do not like this. I, do, I will not stand for this. This will not be the final message. And you and I need to hear this because it's so easy sometimes to think, well, God's just patting me on the head and saying, hey, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Instead of realizing God enters into it and says, this is horrible. What you're going through is terrible. You're enduring horrible things and they're disorienting and they disintegrate your very being sometimes. And I will not leave it this way. I'm not oblivious to what you're going through. And I have acted powerfully to change it. Well, we come into this section of praise and it's really hard to get your mind around how praise begins in the congregation in verse 22 and then breaks out to envelop the whole of the world. I'm going to skip one section and just go straight to this connection between the cry and this relationship that it has to the whole world. As one person says, the fruit of this man, and this was true even then, of course, it it has its ultimate rich uh, fulfillment and expression in the work of Jesus himself. But even this psalmist, as he was contemplating God's deliverance of him, he had his mind on the horizon of the whole world. So that the fruits of his deliverance are as wide as the world. And here is a beautiful, beautiful connection. Why is this the God of the whole world? Why is this the king over all nations? Because he's the one who listens to the individual who's been shamed and broken. Do you understand that? He is the God of the nations because he is the God who hears the individual. That's the God who rules this world. There is no other God worthy of the rule of the world. And the parallel is in Philippians 2 when Paul first describes how Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out and became a servant, even to the point of the death on the cross. Okay, So he describes this 
uh, humiliation of bearing sin on the cross, the love that's involved, the self-giving that was involved. Now, I love this word. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Wait, why did he highly exalt him? Because he showed himself truly to be God by spending himself lavishly for his people. He showed himself worthy of the ruler of the world. The only one who could rule the world is one who lavishly spends himself for others. And so we hear that, and so in a way, though it seems to come out of nowhere, it comes from this wonderful connection that the kind of mercy and care that was given to this one individual is the kind of mercy and care that this God will show throughout the whole world. And so all are invited, you see, to look at the suffering and rescue of the one to be encouraged that when they are pushed to the point of death, when they are disoriented and, and disintegrated, they too can come and find mercy from this God. This cry in the midst of enemies is still heard by God. And this one act of deliverance has worldwide earth-shattering consequences. And of course, especially is this the case when we see this Enriched and fulfilled in Christ Jesus himself. In that his rescue from his enemies occurred in the resurrection itself, you see. His rescue and deliverance was from the death that he suffered and being buried for three days. And think how the stakes are so much higher because instead of just an individual sufferer who himself is a sinner. Now you have the individual sufferer who is the God-man who himself has no sin and he's bearing the sin of his people. He's demonstrating the glorious sacrifice. And think what his rescue will mean for the world. And... It means, too, that he now is exalted as the king. And I think of this verse 28, kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. How much like the end of Matthew it is where he says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Go and make disciples of the nations. You see the relationship. All authority is mine. Go and make disciples of the nations. And so lordship, kingship. Is rooted in the very one who suffered and died. The very one who cries out, my God, my God, is now exalted as the king to draw all nations to himself. And so we worship this God who would identify with us and enter into our confusion and darkness and disorientation and cry, my God, my God, and and who could enter into all of this attack of enemies, mocking him and mocking his faith and destroying him and yet being raised to new life so that he is indeed the king through whom all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. So that we read in uh, Revelation that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will stand before the throne of God. Such 
is the suffering of Christ and how it's manifested in this world. And so there's this this amazing connection between the cry and the sufferer and the breakout of salvation in the whole world. Because he, how can God be the savior of the world? How can he even be the worthy ruler of the world if he's not the one who shows mercy to the individual? And it's remarkable in a day and age where a leader showing individual attention to a particular person or a leader actually dying for those that he is leading to ever be seen at all. But that's God. That's our God. And that's why we rejoice in his rule in this world in the midst of darkness and confusion. Yeah, he's entered the confusion. He understands it. He understands the pain and horror of it. And he has redeemed this world through his grace. And he is with us in it to see it all removed in that final day. So, to close, this thanksgiving that is offered upon a deliverance was routinely accompanied by an offering. And with the sacrifice, it was followed by a feast that in Leviticus could last as long as two days. So here it is, and and you can get the picture here as he uh, calls the afflicted, verse 26, to eat and be satisfied. So my vows, this is probably the sacrifice performing these vows. And I'm not keeping my happiness to myself, but I'm, I'm calling other people, inviting servants and other needy folks to eat with me before the Lord. And then to tell the congregation what God has done for me. To join in this song. And this is, to me, one of the most beautiful and mysterious things in all of Scripture. Is this verse 22 is quoted in Hebrews 2. And it says, this is Christ speaking. Christ. That is... He is, it's not just that it was a prediction for him, but he's the perfect man who fulfills this suffering and deliverance. And now he is the one who is gathering us to his feast that he has won for us. And so the Lord's Supper is Jesus' own victory feast of thanksgiving For what he has accomplished for his people. And with great joy he invites us needy afflicted people. To feast with him. And give thanks to God for the deliverance that he's brought about for Christ. Because brothers and sisters. The deliverance of Christ from the dead. His resurrection is the promise of God. That all those who are in him are also freed from death are also freed from sin. Because now he has been set free from the punishment of sin. And all who trust him can enter into that same freedom. And so, he does not hide his face from the abhorred or despised. 
the affliction of the afflicted. But he has opened up a way through his blood to come to nothing less than a banquet of thanksgiving. And that's why historically it's called the Eucharist. Which has, means thanksgiving. It's a time of rejoicing over the victory that our great Lord has won through his suffering. Entering into our darkness crying himself and experiencing the vanity of this world, being delivered through the resurrection, and now his salvation is breaking out to all the ends of the earth. Amazing, isn't it? Enemies wagging their heads, mocking, attacking, destroying, and then those enemies cannot stop the gospel that will go into all the world. And will save a multitude that no man can number. That's the way God likes to work it. (laughs) Let us pray. Lord, we rejoice in the great salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in him. We rest in his cry even. We rest that he has borne not only our sin, but he's borne our sorrow. He's borne our griefs. He's borne our darkness and confusion. He enters into the full range of human destruction, yet without sin. And Lord, because of this, you will one day close the chapter on the curse of this world, and it will be forever gone. We're tasting some of it now. We are tasting the bits and pieces of it. We're, 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 we're tasting the beginnings of it. It has already begun, this new resurrected world through the resurrection of Christ. We have been resurrected to new lives that are beginning to more and more know what it is to worship and know what it is to love as Christ has loved us. No, oh Lord, we groan, but we groan with hope that you will not leave us. You will not leave this world the way it is, but you will redeem all things. Oh, Lord, may we proclaim this all the more vigorously in this world and where we are, where you've planted us and around the world, because you are king And the promise is all the nations will come and worship. Oh, Lord, may we believe this great promise for your glory. Amen.